I'm not really sure how you typically think about singing, if that's a kind of a, a thing of yours or not. But uh, if you're anything like me, you're probably, you probably enjoy it a little bit more than you are good at it, right? Anybody else kind of in that camp? You're like, I can sing in the shower. I don't want other people to hear me, right? Uh, I, I, that, that's me. If we were on American Idol, I'd be the week one guy that everybody makes fun of, right? Um, I remember back in the Pine Cove days, I was a counselor there about 20 years ago. We were doing club one night, and uh, I, this is the first time I realized I was, a, I was not a great singer. And um, so we were doing club, and club is kind of their big, high-energy worship gathering. If you've been around Pine Cove, like, there's a lot of jumping, a lot of praise, a lot of joy and energy and things of that nature. We were just going nuts that night. God had been moving miraculously throughout the week. Uh, we've been enjoying it, and I was just like, caught up in, like, in the third heaven of praise, just like, you know, just going nuts. And and singing at the top of my lungs, and, and uh, eyes closed, hands, the whole deal. And I'll never forget, at the end of the, the, end of the worship set, everything kind of wraps up and slows down, and I kind of calm down a little bit, and then I open up my eyes, and there's a little girl staring, staring at me, like right in front of me. She turns around, and she's just looking at me going, and she goes, no, no. Like this little sixth grade girl, I was like, what in the world are you talking about? I was like, are you, it was just, that was awesome. How are, you, how are you focused on me and stuff like that, right? Like I, was just, I was so disheartened about that. I don't know if you're in that vein or not, if singing is one of these things you enjoy. You don't really want other people to hear you or not. But, uh, you know, the good news of, of this whole thing is we're going we're gonna to see singing referenced about 400 times in Scripture, and not one of them has anything to do with how well you're able to do it, right? And so uh, that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. However, about 50 different times we are going to be commanded to sing. It's central to the heart of God. We're going to read things like all throughout the Psalms, Psalm 47, 6. Sing praises to the Lord, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. Psalm 96, oh, sing to the Lord a new song, he says. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name and tell of his salvation from day to day. Matthew 26, 30, on the eve of Jesus' crucifixion, it says that Jesus ate and he sang hymns with his disciples. In other words, the boys get together to hang out and they're singing songs together, Right? Ephesians 5.18, Paul's going to say, Be filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all the things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, it's not just that. In, in Zephaniah 3.17, it's not just we who sing, but, but God actually delights in us. And it says that, that God the Father exalts over his people with really loud singing. The point of the matter, church, is like all throughout Scripture from beginning to end, you're going to see that Jesus, uh, that God the Father is very, very um, serious about our singing. And so the question I want to deal with today is, is simply why. Why is it such a big deal? Why are there over 400 references, 50 direct commands, and then why is it so difficult for many of us to engage in? I think we're going to see that a little bit in this psalm. You, you see this at the very beginning. The whole thing is about singing, right? And uh, in, in fact, if you want to broaden your scope a little bit more, we have an entire book of the Bible dedicated to singing in the Psalms. That's what it is. It is a song book for the Israelites in order to help guide their worship and help them engage in worship. The very first line in this Psalm, uh, the psalmist is going to say, this is a song of praise of David. And so when we read this entire Psalm, you need to think, yeah, we're reading it right now, but people saying these words back to the Lord, in fact, um, each line in the Hebrew alphabet, it just continues to go down to Hebrew alphabet right there, but uh, we're not going to get into that this morning. Here's what he says in verse 1. He just, here's what the sound of praise looks like. I will extol you, my God and my King, and I will bless your name forever and ever, he says. Every single day, I will bless you and praise your name. Again, forever and ever. There's repetition there. Every day, 
I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. That's the sound of praise going on right there. I'm going to extol you, O God, meaning I'm going to take your name and I'm going to lift it up high. I'm going to bless your name forever and ever and ever. That's what praise is. Um, if you have your house appraised, uh, somebody's going to be coming out to your house and they're going to be experiencing your home, taking a look at it. They're going to be testing it all out and they're going to be assigning a value to your home. They're going to come back and say, hey, this thing's worth $150,000, $200,000, whatever your home may be. That's what we are doing when we praise. We are ascribing value and worth to the God we say we love. Um, I love the Hebrew word that he uses for praise here. It's halal. Um, I think Travis referenced it a little bit earlier. It's the beginning of hallelujah. Praise is the Hebrew word halal, and yah is God. So we're praising God. But this word for praise right there is halal. And what it literally means in the original language means uh, to boast foolishly and to make a show of how valuable someone else is. In other words, it's to boast foolishly and to make a scene, to make a show about how valuable someone else is. And so the difference between Upraised today and biblical praise back in, in, in Israel's time uh, is that biblical praise isn't really thinking about what other people are thinking about them. Biblical praise is not concerned about how I look, whether or not I'm looking foolish or whether or not I'm showing off and other people are thinking I'm looking great. Biblical praise is so consumed with the character and the goodness of God that it, that, that is the only thing. It does not care about how it looks. Um, there's a great example of this taking place in 2 Samuel chapter 6. If you remember this story about King David, it's probably, um, it's a funny one. It's a great one to read to kids because it's just, uh, it's a funny one, like I said. Um, this is that story where it's just after David is uh, taken over the throne in Israel. They're bringing the ark of God back into Jerusalem. If you remember this, it was, it was away for a time, um, and they try to bring it back. Uh, David hits pause on that because one of his boys touches the ark of God, and it doesn't go well for him. He dies. And uh, so David's like, okay, do we need to be bringing this back to Jerusalem? Well, he leaves it at this guy's house named Obed-Edom. And for the next three months, he watches how his entire household flourishes. There's blessing upon blessing. The whole city around Obed-Edom is doing awesome. And he's going, okay, uh, yeah, the presence of God, that we, we want the presence of God in Jerusalem. And so they bring the Ark of, Ark of God back into Jerusalem. And it says, as they're bringing it back into Jerusalem, it says, David was so caught up in the joy of God uh, and his presence that he stripped off a lot of his outer garments. And it says that he was dancing before the Lord with all of his might, with shouts and with sounds of trumpets. Right? Can you imagine this? He's just so caught up. The ark of God is coming back home, and he's in his presence, and he's just losing his mind and joy and excitement about what's taking place in the presence of God being right there. He's stripping out some of his outer garments. He's dancing. He's the guy with the flag running around the sanctuary or something like that, and, um, and, and he's just enjoying this thing. And so they end up finishing this celebration of the ark of God coming home, and uh, he goes back home that night. Do you remember how his wife greets him? His wife's like, welcome home, David. You happy with yourself? You, you made a fool of yourself. You're the king of Israel, and you're out there dancing like an idiot. Like, what are you doing out there? In fact, it says in verse 16, it says that she was watching him from the window as they're coming in, and it says that she despised him in her heart. All right? you remember how David responds to this? And David looks at her. He's like, wait, wait, wait. You think I'm embarrassed by that? He goes, you think I'm embarrassed by that? He's like, I haven't even started to do embarrassing things. Like, I'll become even more undignified than that because I wasn't dancing for other people. I was dancing for the Lord. Church, like, that's halal. That's halal. You need to hear me on this. Like, halal is so consumed with the presence of God, it's not thinking about what other people are thinking about. It's not considering, it's not sitting there kind of going, okay, do I look like an idiot to my friends, to my, to my brothers, my sisters, my wife, my husband over here? 
It's not concerned about, about how other people are thinking about me, right? It's, uh, yes, we know the context. Yes, we know that there are some things you can do that are going to be a massive, massively inappropriate thing and be a distraction that are going to keep other people from praising. But largely underneath that enormous umbrella, it's so fixated on the presence of God, the goodness of God, the majesty of God, the character of God, the faithfulness of God over time that it's not thinking about how foolish I may look to someone else. And it's definitely not thinking about, hey, how can I look awesome to the people that are around me so that they think I'm an awesome, holy, pure, godly person or things like that. Church, that's what halal is. It is only thinking about him. It is so consumed with him, his character, majesty, goodness, and everything else. It's why this whole thing is commanded over and over and over again, right? The, the point of praise is that he's not a far away, distant God. There is a fellowship that has taken place. As we relate with him, we are in fellowship with him. We have been brought into relationship with him in such a way that has led to a growing awareness of his value and has led to an overflowing joy that needs to be expressed. It's why the psalmist is going to say so many things like, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of my salvation. Like that's who he is. I'm, I'm in relationship with the God. He is my rock of my salvation. It's personable. I was lost and I was dead in my sins. And in the middle of that place, God in his infinite love fixed his love on me and he saved me. He forgave my sins. He's the rock of my salvation. Let us come before his presence, he says, with thanksgiving. And let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. Church, like that's what you do when someone brings you joy. Like there's an expression of joy that comes alongside the experience of joy. Like that's what you do uh, when someone's brought you joy. You better believe, like 17 years ago, cats walking down that aisle, there was an expression of joy in me. Like it made Radabal look like a man. Like I promise you, right? Like I, I, that expression of joy, I wept like a child out of just joy and excitement about what was walking down that aisle, right? That, that's what you do when someone brings you joy. Like there's an expression of joy that corresponds. And I promise, church, like we all have this, this little thing in us to be able to do it, right? We, we know what that's like. Yesterday, half of us were going nuts over your favorite football team when they scored a touchdown, right? Aggies, you had this for like for a quick second, right? You remember this one, seven to three, and you're like, hey, it's not that bad, right? And you're celebrating. We're like, hey, we scored a touchdown, and people are just going nuts, and you're high-fiving. You're enjoying, you're jumping up and down, and you're, so, you're enjoying the moment because your team has brought you so much joy. And what you notice in that moment is that your ability to express joy in the thing that has brought you joy, it continues to further your joy. Have you noticed that? Like your, ability to just, your ability to enjoy in the moment, to be able to express that joy, it, it, continue, it furthers your ability to experience that joy in the moment. You remember that, um, have you guys seen the commercial? It wasn't in my notes at all. I, I thought about it earlier, but... Um, I think it's a Geico commercial. It's about the boy band, and they're up there. They're, they're singing the, the thing, and, like, everybody's out there. They're like the boy band, but they're not dancing, right? And everybody in the crowd, they're sitting there kind of going, okay, what do we do with this? They're, they're, a boy band that's not dancing isn't really a boy band, right? I, and everybody's so bored out in the crowd. It's the same thing. Church. Like, like your expression, the ability to express your joy adds to the experience of joy like nothing else does. I love the way that the psalmist goes and, and he talks about this here in verse 3. He simply says, great is the Lord. Listen to these words that he's saying. Great is the Lord, and he greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Did that catch anybody else off guard? His greatness is unsearchable. I want you to think about what he's saying right there. What he's not saying is you should give up because you're never going to understand how great he is. What he's saying is that you can grow in an understanding of how great and awesome and majestic he is every single day for 150 years, if you were able to live 150 years, and he would never run out of new content to reveal to you. In other words, like you could capture 
these moments and these understandings of just saying, oh my gosh, like I knew him in this way, but today I know him this much. And, and, and today I now know him this much. And oh my gosh, I saw him move in these ways over here. And you could be doing that day after day after day for 150 years into infinity, and you will never come to an understanding of just how fully great he actually is. In that way, it's a lot like, um, it's kind of a lot like seeing the stars in the sky in some ways. I was thinking about this again this past summer. We were out on vacation and we were out in Costa Rica and we went into the city one night. We were getting dinner at this um, kind of hotel area. The lights were lit up everywhere. It's this beautiful place. We're kind of overlooking the ocean, the mountains, and we kind of go out on this patio and we're like, wow, this is a beautiful scene. The lights are all lit up and, and you could see a whole lot and it was great. It was nothing compared to when we got in the car and we drove back home. We took this long winding road away from the city, away from the lights. And we got to this place out, out of the middle of nowhere. There's no lights. There's nothing else around you. And we walked out into the patio that night. I remember looking up, and it was one of those nights where the stars are, it looked like you could just grab them with your hand. You know what I'm talking about? You ever do that? You go, get away from the city. You're out in the middle of a field, and, and all of a sudden, like, they're right there on top of you. Church, the reality is that those stars, they were always there. They were always there. The only thing that was different was where I was standing and my ability to behold what was already there. Does that make sense? Like that is the only thing that changed. They always were there. But the difference is that previously I was standing in the city lights and I was so consumed with so many other things around me, I could not see the very things that were right there. And what the psalmist is saying is for the rest of our days, I could grow in understanding every single day. Lord, you could blow my mind with your majesty, your goodness, your greatness, the size of your grace, the amount of your forgiveness, the good things that you've done. I could grow in an understanding that every single day, and you're never going to run out of brand new content for me to see. You're never going to stop amazing me with your goodness and your mercy, your gentleness, and all the different things that you come and you bring to the table. Church, it's why the revelation scene that we talk about so much, it's why that makes so much sense. Have you thought about that? John gets this vision of the heavenlies, and it's the elders, and it's the saints, and it's the angels, and they're in the throne room of God, and what they're doing is they're beholding God in his fullness. They're seeing the veil, the, the, the curtain, like the veil just completely wide open. They're understanding for the first time ever, this is who he is. They're seeing him in unveiled glory, the fullness of, of, of his power, the fullness of his creation, all of his infinite wisdom, and the only thing they can think to do is to bow down and to cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Like worthy is the lamb that was slain. And it says that they just kept singing day in and day out. That is the only thing that made sense to do when they are understanding the fullness of God. I'm beholding him all the more. It is beyond anything I can possibly imagine. The stars aren't just right up there. They're right here and I'm grasping them for the very first time. The only thing that makes sense for them to do is to fall down on their face and to cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Church, like that's halal. That is what halal is. It is responding to the infinite majesty of God, all of his goodness, all of his grace, coming into an awareness of those things and not being concerned about what it looks like in the end. It's halal. And so you need to understand because we're not, we're not talking about empty emotionalism here. Emotionalism is this empty stirring of emotions that has absolutely no foundation here. We're talking about beholding the greatness of God all the more. And what David's showing us is like when that's what's taking place as we sing these songs, when that's what's taking place as we look at these words and we come in prepared to worship our infinite, holy, majestic, awesome God, then it's okay to sing with joy. And it's okay to engage with your emotions and it's okay to express a little bit of joy in the Savior who is the rock of your salvation. 
So the question that I was wondering a little bit this past week is this. If that's what's taking place, then why is it so difficult for many of us to engage in praise? Like, why is that such a hard thing for many of us? Why were there worship wars for so many years? There's a lot of answers to that, but like, why is it such a difficult thing for many of us? I think one of the things, one of the reasons it may be difficult for us is probably the most difficult one, but um, praise may not really be your thing if that's never been your experience with the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise may not really be your thing if you've never had that kind of a joy-filled relationship with him, right? Like, it makes sense, right? You're not going to praise someone you don't enjoy, and you're not going to praise someone that you're not presently enjoying. You're not going to praise someone that you enjoyed when you were five and been distant from for the past 25 years. You're not going to praise someone that you don't, you're not constantly aware of his goodness, his majesty, his power, his grace, the infinite ways that he is intervening in your life every single day. I mean, just look at some of the things that he's singing about in this song. Verse 8, he's going to say, The Lord is gracious and he's merciful. He's slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love. Church, like, how in the world are you going to praise him if you've never tasted of his steadfast love? How in the world are you going to continue to praise him if you're not tasting and seeing that the Lord is, is good every single day? I'm thinking of Luke chapter 7, one of my favorite stories in Scripture. This is a scene where uh, this woman who's described as a sinful woman, she finds out that Jesus is having dinner at a, a Pharisee's home in town named Simon. She decides to crash the party. They're all eating dinner. And you remember the scene. She comes in, and uh, his feet are all sprawled out. And she just makes this scene at Jesus' feet, weeping, tears of joy, tears. And she's just crying all over his feet. She takes her hair. She's wiping his feet. She pours perfume all over his feet. It's this weird scene. And the Pharisees are looking at this all, and they're kind of going, okay, what's up with this lady? Why is she doing all this stuff? And even more than that, like, why isn't Jesus stopping her? Because this is not appropriate. This is not what you do. Right? We're supposed to sit there, hands in, hands in pockets, and you're, you're supposed to be respectful. You're supposed to not, not move. You're supposed to, you know what I mean? And, and so Jesus goes into story mode, and he says, okay, I know what you're thinking. I want to tell you a story. There's two guys here. They both owe a lot of money. One guy owes $500. Another guy owes $5 million. Neither one of them are able to pay back their debt. And so the money lender graciously forgives both of their debt. And so we ask him this question, and he says, okay, so which one of these two people is going to be more grateful, more expressive in their, in their love for the money lender? So Simon perks up and he goes, well, probably the guy that owes $5 million. And Jesus goes, ah, you answered wisely. And then he goes into this little story and he goes, yeah, I entered your house. And he says, you gave me no water for my feet. She hasn't stopped wetting my feet with her tears and wiping it up with her hair. You gave me no kiss. She hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with perfume. You want to know why? It's because she knows that her many sins have been forgiven as her great love is shown. But here it is, whoever thinks little of their own forgiveness will love little too. And church, for some of us, that may be the problem with praise. The problem with praise may be that we think very little of the amount of forgiveness that we've received. Maybe we're naive to it, maybe we've forgotten it. But for some of us, that may be the problem. When we come in, we think very little of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in our life, not just for salvation, but every single day. Church, you can't praise what you haven't enjoyed. And you can't praise what you're not presently enjoying every single day. I'm thinking of a good friend of mine. Nine years ago, we met. And this is a time in his life that everything had crumbled. Everything was broken and destroyed. And we came in, he comes into my office, and he just says, hey, I've been coming to your church a couple weeks now, and we were doing singles ministry at the time. And and he comes in, he just says, "I, I need to let you know my story, and it's not a pretty one. And so he comes, and he tells me the whole story. There's legalities involved. There's a sentence there. There's probation for the next 10 years. And he goes, you need to understand, like, this is, I, this is fresh. I just came out of this. And I, I, I probably shouldn't even be here. What, like, what do we do? And he just wept. 
he wept in my office. And we sat there, and I'm processing everything, and we're kind of asking the question, okay, like, what's the, what's the, what's the answer? Like, does grace apply here, too? Does grace apply here, too? And we sat there, and we opened up the Word of God, and we just read one of my favorite passages I quote all the time around here from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, where Paul simply says, don't you know that the unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom of God? And he's kind of giving this before bad news and after good news kind of a presentation here because don't you know the unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom of God? And then he goes in this laundry list of, of, of designations of people who won't inherit. It's this person, it's that person, it's this person, it's this person. It, it's all these different designations. And then he simply says, but here it is. Such were some of you, but you were washed by the blood of the lamb. But you were justified and declared righteous, not because you are righteous, but because it's exactly what God has given you in Jesus Christ. And you were sanctified and set apart as holy through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and through the spirit of the living God. And we sat there in this text and we said, this text applies to your situation. And we sat there and we wept and we prayed. And we came up with a plan with elders and leaders of the church um, of, of restoration and how this thing could work out and um, talked with some small group leaders at the church and and one of them was like, yeah, let's, let's meet. I'd love to meet him. They brought him into his group, and over time, he got, felt the freedom and the, the safety to share his story with that group. And they met him there in the middle of that place with grace. They walked alongside him, met with him, helped him, uh, taught him the truth of God's word, carried him for a number of years. Church, I can't tell you today, nine years of, of victory there, seeing this man come into the church all the time. And seeing his praises rise up to God, knowing where you were nine years ago, it's a person that understands how deeply you've been forgiven. It's someone who understands that this isn't just a superficial thing. Like there was this infinite abyss between me and a holy God. And in the middle of that place, God never stopped loving me so much so that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to do for me what I could not do for myself. And grace actually applies to my life too. And to see this man come into the church nine years later of victory and health and to see the transformation that's taken place in that person's life. I, the man sings praise like you wouldn't believe. You don't have to tell him and order him, hey, buddy, you need to sing a song. He knows how deeply he's been forgiven, church. You will not praise if you don't understand how deeply you've been forgiven. And you need to understand it's not just for, hey, the people that have a rap sheet or legal issues or things of that nature. It's, the, it's a problem for the religious hypocrite. This is my story, coming to faith as a five-year-old in a Christian home, surrounded by the church, uh, and being in a very religious environment, like I was down the path to being that religious hypocrite that does more damage than anybody else. And in the middle of that place, God showed me his grace. Church, you will not praise unless you understand how deeply you've been forgiven. You will not praise unless you understand the full extent of his grace in your life every single day of your life. Church, look at the things that he's singing about right here. Like, how, we, we, you can't ignore it. Verse, verse 15, he's going to say, the eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. Church, you don't praise unless you understand he's the one who provides for you in these seasons of transition. When you don't know what your job's going to look like, you don't know where your next paycheck's going to come from. And you know that he's the one who's been faithful from generation to generation. He's the one that's going to carry you through this season. It says in the next verse, he opens his hand and he satisfies the desires of every living thing. Church, how can you not praise if you've tasted of his satisfaction and you know that he's able to satisfy in a way that all of those other illicit ways cannot ever satisfy? Like how do you not satisfy or how do you not praise when that's your experience with him, church? You're not going to praise something that you're not presently enjoying. And for some of us, that may be the difficulty that we have Sunday after Sunday. When you come into a room and some people are engaging, and I'm not, you need to hear me, I'm not just talking about whether you raise your hands, you kneel, you're emotional or you're not. 
but you're coming in here, and that may be the difficulty that we're feeling. You cannot pray something that you haven't enjoyed. The other thing that I'm thinking about here is this. Some of us may have a difficult time engaging in praise simply because we've made this unconscious decision to say, okay, Lord, you can have my mind, you can have my strength, you can have my soul, because that's the ambiguous one. I don't really know what to do with that one, right? <laughs> but my heart, like this one's hold, I'm holding on to this one. Are you with me on that? For some of us, the difficulty is, hey, you can have these other things, but the heart thing, like, that's, that's off the table. And it's not a conscious decision that a lot of us make. We don't sit there and say, hey, Jesus, you don't get this. It's one of these things that we subtly do and aren't always aware of do, that, that we do it. And there's a lot of different things that may go into it. Like, for some of us, it may be, um, like, for some of us, it may be very simply that we've been very hurt and damaged at some point in the past. We have given our heart away in a number of different places, and it's been trounced upon. Maybe it's by church leadership at some point in time. Maybe it's by someone you loved and you said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to self-protect right here, and my heart is just going to be off the table. I'm going to know you, I'm going to serve you, but the heart is going to be completely off the table. Like for some of us, um, it may be the fact that you're a man, and the entirety of your life you've been told that you're supposed to stuff down those, those feelings, or those, those emotions, like emotive responses, like, like those aren't for you. I had a, my men's group met on Wednesday. We were talking about this, and everybody was sharing the exact same story, self-included. We've all heard those messages. I, I, those emotions, you, you, you stuff them down. You don't trust what you're feeling inside. They lie to you all the time. They're only based upon lies, right? And, and maybe that's the, the, the thing that you've done. You said, okay, you know what? The emotional, the heart, the soul thing, whatever. Like Women, you can take that. Uh, man, I'm going to focus on my mind and my strength, and I'm going to take care of that. And you've divided up the whole great commandment right there. For some of us, it may be a personality thing. You're kind of saying, okay, you know what? I did, my, I did my Enneagram, and it's, you know, I'm that logical, linear thinker type. I'm not really the free spirit artist or something like that. And you're kind of going like emotions. Eh, eh. I go, you're like, that's just not my, that's not how I'm wired. It's not who I am. I mean, I'll never forget um, a number of years ago back in college, we were, it was a Sunday morning. We were getting, we were going out to a church that morning with a bunch of my roommates, and uh, we were running late. And I finally yelled at one of my friends. I was like, buddy, I was like, hurry up. We're running late. We need to go. And, uh, and he yells back, and he's like, calm down, man. We're not going to miss the good stuff. I was like, what are you, the good stuff? I was like, what do you mean by the good stuff? And he's like, yeah, you know, I'm preaching of God's word. He's like, I'm a Bible guy. When I go to church, I go to learn, and I go to serve. I don't go to sing and get all emotional and stuff like that. And of course, he was a buddy of mine, so I ripped him back. And I was like, wow, for a Bible guy, you sure are comfortable ignoring a lot of the Bible. <laughs> church, like, I, honestly, what do we do with the 400 references to singing? What do we do with the entirety of Scripture from beginning to end? Men, women, and children responding to the majesty, the character, the goodness of God, the, the, the reality of his grace in your life every single day in an emotional capacity. What do we do with the 50 different commands to sing? What do we do with singing that's going on day and night in the heavenlies as people are beholding the fullness of God? Like what do we do with the great commandment that says, this is the greatest commandment in all of Scripture. Love the Lord your God. All of your heart, all of your soul all of your mind and all of your strength. You don't divide it up and say, you take this part, I'm taking this part. It's the entirety of the thing. I don't care if you're a man or you're a woman, you're an Enneagram, one, two, nine, 10, 100, whatever you are. Like, what do we do with all these things, church? Like, as people of God's word, how in the world do we justify holding on to our heart? I mean, I love the way Kat describes this in her book. She writes all about this, and she says, uh, she says that the heart is not just a place of emotions uh, where our emotions are kept, it's the driving force behind our actions. Uh, church, that's what the heart is. 
It's the driving force behind our actions. Loving God with all of our hearts is not just feeling love toward God or redirecting misguided feelings back to God. It is about letting our love for him determine how we live. Church, that's why Jesus is going to say uh, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Right? Like you don't say things that don't originate in here first. It's the reason like our jokes matter, right? You don't always get away with your jokes because there's elements of truth there, right? You don't say things that don't originate in here. You don't do things that don't first have their roots somewhere inside of you, church. I guess that's what's going on there. Uh, she goes on and she talks about how in Mark chapter 2, look at this. The scribes are all scheming against Jesus. And I want you to notice how Jesus responds to them. He says this. He says, um, so guys, why are you thinking all these things in your heart? They're scheming against him. And he says, why are you thinking all these things in your heart? In other words, he's not saying, okay, uh, how, what are you feeling in your heart? He said, what are you thinking about in your heart, church? In other words, like the whole thing is integrated. The whole thing is integrated. In other words, like the heart is not just about feelings and emotions. It is the place where thinking and feelings come together in unity and ultimately dictate the things that you do. It's why Proverbs is going to say, above all else, guard your heart, for it will determine the course of your life. Above everything else, pay attention to what's going on in here. Don't minimize it. Like, don't cast it off to the side. Don't think it's not important. Like, don't, don't denigrate it. Don't anything. Pay attention to these things. Protect it and guard it because it will determine the course of your life. Paul's going to say, put on the full armor of God so that you can protect it because there is a day coming. You're going to need to stand your ground and be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows and lies of the enemy. Church, like that's how the enemy works. He comes into your place. He comes and meets you in this place where you're trying to worship. You want to worship. Maybe you can't worship, and he tries to convince you everything's over. There is no more grace for you. There is no more favor for you. There is no more future for you. You're damaged good. You're not going to come back from this thing. You're never going to make a difference. Your marriage is always going to be terrible. You're always going to be alone. You're never going to be a great parent. You're always going to be sick. You're never going to be enough. And in the middle of that place, praise breaks through those lies and builds your faith by reminding you that victory's already been won. Like that's what praise does. We're coming in, we're not just reading certain truths about God, we're singing it. We are boldly declaring things that are true about God. How in the world do we sing a song like Always Faithful and not believe just a little bit more that he's faithful? Have you paid attention to the things that we do every single week? It's why it's a massive part of our worship service. Like how in the world do we sing a song like Always Faithful and not have faith arise to where we begin to feel, where our feelings and our emotions begin to align with the things that we already know are true? Listen to the words of this song, Always Faithful. Though the weeping endures for the night, your joy comes in the morning. Though sorrow may last for a time, your joy, O oh Lord, it comes in the morning. Faithful, you're always faithful. True, you're always true. You'll never leave me. You're always with me. Like how in the world do we sing those words and, and not have faith arise in us and understand he's a faithful God. He's never going to leave us or forsake us. I'll never forget years ago, um, some good friends of ours were, um, they blogged about this experience. They had just, um, they had just been through their third miscarriage as a family. And this one happened really, really late in the game. So they were absolutely devastated and all their so many hopes were just crushed. Many of us know exactly what that's like. She blogs about this experience, and she says, it was a Sunday morning. I've been skipping for a number of weeks because I just could, didn't feel like showing up. I couldn't celebrate. I couldn't be happy about anything. And she goes, I finally decided, you know what? This morning I'm going to walk by faith, not by how I feel. I'm going to come into the join the church anyway. And she walks into the church, and she says, I sat in the back row because I didn't want to be around people. I didn't want people talking to me about it or anything like that. And she goes, I just sat there, head down, my, my, my face in my hands, 
and I just listened to the praises of the church. And they just sang, and they just sang, and they sang. And I said, God, would you somehow just meet me here? I'm not feeling this. I don't, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not in line with what's going on. And she goes, it's exactly what God did. In the middle of the church's corporate singing, I had no faith. They had all the faith in the world, and their faith sustained my faith. And all of a sudden, in the middle of that place, I began to believe that he was never going to leave me nor forsake me. We get to the third song, and it's always faithful. And she goes, I'm going to sing this one by faith. And she goes, I barely mustered up enough energy to stand that day. And I began singing these words, the weeping endures for the night. Your joy is going to come in the morning. Like, though, though sorrow may last for a time, there's joy that comes in the morning. Faithful, God, you're always faithful. True, God, you're always true. You're never going to leave me. You're always going to be with me. And she goes, in the middle of that place, God, through his grace, built up faith in me to where I could actually believe the things that I knew were true. Church, it's the gift of song. It's the gift of song whereby he's given us this gift to help build our faith in a way like nothing else does. It helps us remember things in ways that nothing else does. Oliver Sacks writes about this in his book, Musicophilia. He says, you see the power of music in Alzheimer's patients who can't tell you the name of their spouse or children, but they can instantly sing songs that they learned as a child. Why? Like, it, it helps you remember things you can never otherwise remember. That's partly because musical elements like rhythm, meter, and rhyme, they govern and restrict the way we say words and the time it takes to say them. The more unique, repetitive, and immediately impacting these musical elements are, the easier it is to remember that song. Church, it's the gift of song that he gives us to help build our faith. It's not manipulation of emotions. It's coming together and boldly declaring the things we already know are true, whether we feel them or not, in hopes that our feelings are going to catch up to the things we know are true. It's a powerful discipline that he's given us church. Like how in the world do we sing, oh, praise the name of Jesus and not be moved? How in the world do we sing the, the, the gospel? That's what it is. This is a gospel narrative song that takes you through the range of emotions from lament at the cross to emotive joy at the tomb. Uh, you, you know that, right? Like that's what we're singing about and declaring when we sing this song. Praise God that our kids know this song. Like how beautiful was that? But have you paid attention to these lyrics that they're learning at such an early age? Like, I cast my mind to Calvary. In other words, Jesus, I'm not thinking about Lubies. I'm not thinking about the Cowboys this afternoon right now. I'm not thinking about my fantasy football team or any of these other kinds of things. Like I'm casting my mind to Calvary right now. It's on you where Jesus bled and he died for me. I see his wounds and his hands and his feet. My Savior on that cursed tree. His body bound and drenched in tears, they laid him down in Joseph's tomb. The entrance sealed by heavy stone and Messiah still and all alone. In the middle of lament, church, in the middle of the cross, the darkness of the cross, we sing, oh, praise the name, oh, oh praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise his name forevermore. And like in the middle of the cross on Good Friday, we're still going to sing. And church, here it is, like faith, faith builds and faith comes about. Praise will take place when you're able to take the, when you're able to move from stanza one and this one down to stanza three. Here's what it says. It says, then on the third at break of dawn, the son of heaven rose again. Oh, trampled death, where is your sting? The angels roar for Christ the king. They're not sitting their hands in pocket going, awesome, that was cool. That was great. Angels roar for Christ the King. He conquered sin and death. And I understand that you did that on my behalf. All of my sins are forgiven. I'm not too far gone. There's grace for me today. No matter how bad it got, there is grace and there is healing right now in the middle of this place. Church, this is where worship is formed. 
This is where praise, this is where praise rises up when you move from the understanding of what took place to the personalization of what he did, and you say, that was for me. And you conquered the sin and gra- you conquered the, gra- the grave. You walked out of that tomb alive for me. It's where worship comes up. He shall return in robes of right. Why, like the story's not done. The blazing sun shall pierce the night. I will rise among the saints. My gaze transfixed on Jesus' face. Revelation tells us he's coming back again and he's making all things brand new. Church, the story's not done. It's why we're singing. It's why we're praising. Church, how do we sing that and, and, and just sit there and just be like, that was awesome. All right, what's happening with, with Zeke this week? I mean, I, how do we do this? Come down fount of every blessing. Tune my heart, God, to sing your praise. Streams of mercy, mercy, mercy. It's never ceasing. It doesn't stop. I didn't just become a saint at salvation. I sin all the time, and there's new mercies every single day. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. God, church, anybody there, anybody else prone to wander, even as a believer, even as a believer who holds to these truths and worships Jesus, like anybody else prone to wander? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take, and would you seal it, seal it for thy courts above. All we're doing is singing our prayers. Just boldly declaring things we already know are true and saying, God, would you lift my faith that I can begin to believe the things that my head believes that my heart isn't quite there yet. We need it. We need it. We need to grow in this church. I love Bible church. It's my whole, that's my world. I'm that cognitive, linear, logical thinker, the dude that was told to shove and suppress every feeling you had. Grew up in the Bible church. It was just like, hey, learn the Greek and that's it. We need to grow in this. It is essential that we understand and we're able to express the joy of our relationship with him.